I still have a crush on Leonardo DiCaprio. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with the big red S. That's the blanket he was wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those are his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Style Guide podcast with your hosts Stephen Orr and Dave Morris. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing very well. It's actually nice to be back in our old, like, you know, across the country from each other, not looking at each other, because the last episode was a little a little weird. A little weird. Yeah, it's we, we have this flow that works really well when we can't see each other, and when we can, it's very strange. It throws me off. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy to be back in our normal our normal situation. It's nice. It's nice. <laughs> so uh, so today we're talking about the work and uh, the body of work of Quentin Tarantino. Director, yeah. writer, uh, filmmaker extraordinaire. Actor. Not much of an actor. <laughs> he's an actor. Maybe not an extraordinaire, but he's an actor. <laughs> he plays himself, doesn't he? Hey, he played an Australian in Django Unchained. I think that's because he wants to be Australian. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. I think he was like, I can do an Australian accent. And that was that. See, my hope is his next movie is going to be a Western set in Australia. Oh, an Australian Outback Western? Yeah. That would be pretty good. I think that'd Following be fun. the like that Australian outlaw that was like the, their version of Billy the Kid. Yeah, there you go. Can't remember his name right now, but he uh, he built like a suit of armor. Like that's what he's famous for. He he made a suit of armor and then had like a shootout with like the cops in this suit of armor that he built for himself. Ned Kelly was his name. That's it. Uh and he had this shootout and they shot him down. That's great. I think we need to get this to Tarantino as fast. He probably knows already. It would be a pretty good movie, right? <laughs> this outlaw they chase down, and then he, in the end, he like builds a suit of armor and stands off against them. It's great. It's like Iron Man. Okay, okay. That is that is not where I expected that to go. That'll work, though. That'll yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Today we're going to talk about Tarantino, and uh, and I mean just to to start things off, I love Tarantino's work. So do I. Love it. Huge Love fan. his work. Ever since I first saw, uh, I think I saw Pulp Fiction before I saw Reservoir Dogs. Now that I think about it, uh, and ever since I saw it, huge Tarantino fan. For for me, it it's been uh, an on again, off again because I loved Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, and I couldn't get into Kill Bill for the life of me. Both really, the, yeah. The, I, the first time I tried to watch uh, Kill Bill, I actually shut it off. Wow, that's strange. Because, you know, I expect that reaction for Jackie Brown uh, from people, uh, especially <laughs> myself, of like, Jackie Brown, not his best work. But Kill Bill, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely in shock. Well, and, and that's the thing. In retrospect, it's very strange that uh, that's what happened for me. And I think, I think what happened was I was watching Kill Bill for the first time on a tiny little TV in my bedroom, and like the the beautiful visual effects didn't come across that well, sure. and and so I think the the opening scene uh, opening scene with the nurse is that how it opens? I don't think that's how it opens at all. But well, it, well, isn't there the the she's in the hospital and the nurse comes in. I don't think that's how it opens, but I think that's one of the very first scenes. 
You know, maybe that is how it opens. Maybe that is how it opens. I, I don't know if I can honestly remember the opening of Kill Bill. I think that's what it is. But regardless. Yeah, let's let's say it is. Let's say it starts with etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So I was watching it on, on a on a tiny little TV and all of the beauty of the scene was not coming across totally. at all. Yeah. I can see that. So then all you're left with in the movie is like Uma Thurman's tough person voice. Where she talks like this all the time. And you're like, okay, Uma Thurman, yeah. come on. Yeah. Emote. Emote a little more. So I I turned it off and didn't come back to it until – I think I came back to it after watching Death Proof and watched it on a proper television and really enjoyed it, obviously. Oh, yeah, because it is good. It's good. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Just not the not the first time for me. So Yeah, Jackie Brown, not that great. I mean, he he was doing something interesting, but... I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy some of the scenes from it, but overall... I, and I think it's because that was like that was adapted from a book, wasn't it? It was. Uh, Elmore Leonard. Yeah, an Elmore Leonard novel, which uh, I can see that being an Elmore Leonard novel. And if it was directed by, I don't know, someone having more fun with it, I think it would have worked a little better. But trying to Tarantinoize it didn't quite, uh, didn't quite come across so great. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. So we love Tarantino. We even do. Though we've had you've had an on and off again relationship, and there are some of his works that I'm not. Uh, they aren't my favorite. You're you're also talking about Death Proof, I presume. Death Proof, I didn't mind actually. I kind of enjoyed it. I I, I love it for what it is. Yeah, and I think uh, I remember when I watched Death Proof, and I I had this moment halfway through the movie where I was like, "What the fuck." It's just starting again because that's how it felt. It felt like he told me a story and then killed the characters and then just started again with a whole nother story <laughs> with new characters. No. And I was like, I don't, he just broke storytelling, I think, or he did something great with it. I'm not sure, but I didn't, I didn't mind Death Room. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's a good film. I think that he's, I mean, and, and this is the thing about Tarantino. He's, he's always, uh, paying homage to to the works that inspired him as a child and as a young man, and mm -hmm. the the works that kind of created film as a genre. So, you know, Death Proof definitely fits into that in the same way that something like Kill Bill or Jackie Brown does as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. But yeah, my first uh, my first introduction to Tarantino was Pulp Fiction. I'm now remembering this very clearly because I went to see it with my father in the theaters. When I was like, uh, how old would I have been? I think yeah, I was 14. I was 14 years old. I was like in, just in high school, younger though. My dad wanted to go see this new Tarantino movie because he heard, heard it was really good. And so he brought me. And not my sister though, who was like <laughs> 10. But he brought me and we watched it. And uh, the butt raping scene was incredibly awkward <laughs> to watch with my father next to me <laughs> in a movie theater. Which, indeed, part of the point, although I'm not sure Tarantino was expecting it to be a father-son experience. <laughs> I don't think so. I hope he wasn't. Because if that's what he was expecting, Tarantino's crazy. <laughs> see, and, and that recalls for me, actually, when I tried to see Kill Bill in theaters. Ah. We, were, we were seeing it with a bunch of friends, and when Kill Bill came out in 2003, I think, Mm -hmm. um, it, wa it wasn't an 18A movie, but maybe it was 16. It would have been R. 
Yeah? Was it R? Okay. Well, anyway. Uh, I don't know. You want me to look? I'm, I'm pretty sure it was an R. Back then, I don't think they had 18A. Well, I can't remember. So, Canadian ratings is weird, too. Yeah. But regardless, we were going to see it. And one person, uh, actually, Kayla Lorette, I'm just going to out her right now, was was too too young to pass as uh, old enough to get into the film. She still is too young to pass as old enough. Uh, as far as like looking at her, you'd be like, mm, you need some ID, lady. And and so we were like, oh, I guess we're not going to see Kill Bill. And so we all got tickets for Under the Tuscan Sun. <laughs> okay. And and we're, the plan was we were going to go sneak in to see Kill Bill. Except a few a few folks were were too chicken to do that, and I was not one of the people too chicken to do that. But then sitting there at, during the opening of Kill Bill, I felt too awkward and like I was going to get caught, and so I went and watched Under the Tuscan Sun instead. <laughs> wow! So there were four of us watching Under the Tuscan Sun and four of us watching Kill Bill. That is that is a thrilling story of heroics and daring and cowardice. <laughs> Man, high school, am I right? Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, but so since I saw Pulp Fiction, and then Jackie Brown was the next Tarantino movie, I think, that really came out after that. I mean, Four Rooms came out in between there. But Jackie Brown didn't really dig it, but loved Reservoir Dogs after I hunted it down after Pulp Fiction. Um, and then the Kill Bills, which were... Which were sort of like cinematic spectaculars to me, I think. Like I, I, I was like the fact that it was like a two volume release and like slotted for two Christmases apart, I think. Was that what it was? Two Christmases? That sounds right. I think that sounds about right. Uh it was just like this great cinematic like to me it was the first big Tarantino movie in theaters that I was like old enough to go see on mm. my own. On my own, you know. Uh so Kill Bill Volume One and Two were like to me Tarantino's like uh I don't want to say peak because it sounds like that means he's on a downslide now. But like uh, at the time, it felt like this was like ah, uh, he's made it now. He's hit his his uh, his height. Yeah, and then he went out and did Death Proof, and everyone hated him for a little while. Yeah, I don't know why everybody hated him, but it wasn't the greatest, I guess. Well, I mean, I think that everyone see, seeing what Tarantino could do with genre. Uh, watching something like Death Proof, I think, is a surprising departure because he's not really doing anything novel. He's playing the genre pretty straight there, mm-hmm. and it it was boring in in some ways. I mean, it was long. By if I'm not mistaken, it ended up being close to three hours. Death Proof. No, but no? you watched it as part of Grindhouse, right? It right. came out in Grindhouse. Which I think is what made such a bad taste is that you'd watch Planet Terror, the zombie one that was along with it. Yeah. And then you'd watch Death Proof and the whole thing was like, oh my God, like two, two, almost three hours probably. Yeah. And Planet Terror was actually excellent. Planet Terror was super funny and fun and it came first. Yeah. So you watch this really fun, ridiculous Planet Terror movie. Uh, waiting to get to this Tarantino movie. And by the time you get to the Tarantino one, you're so tired and you're like just exhausted of watching movies now. And then you have to watch this Tarantino movie that is very different than anything else he'd ever make. So I think if if you just watch Death Proof, it's not so bad. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's not so bad. Which which then brings us to, of course, his westerns, traditional westerns from. Oh, you're, certain, hop, you're hopping one there. Well, I, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, Inglorious Bastards, 
Django and the Hateful Eight, his westerns, as I call them. You call Inglorious Bastards one of the westerns. <laughs> it definitely it. is. He calls it one of his westerns. I guess you could call it one of his westerns. I just think of it as a historical, uh, what do you call them? Um, uh, re, 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 revisionist history. That yeah. is Revisionist history where he changes history, which is super funny and fun. I remember watching Glorious Bastards and I think my wife hated it. Well, she didn't hate it, but she didn't dig it. And I loved it. And when we left, it made great conversation on the way home, actually. Well, it, I mean, it, it is a very fun movie. And technically, I think it's his best film. Like, as, as an all-around piece, I think that he he masters cinematography in it. The writing is, is careful, crisp. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful to watch. The lots of different languages. Uh, it's when, it's, it was when he started playing with lots of different languages, which is awesome. Yeah. Because uh, that movie is in English, German, and French, right? Like, that's incredible. We oui. And he found, what's his name? Christoph Waltz, who's like his new favorite person in the world. Uh, he's most people's new favorite person. He's such a wonderful, charming old actor. man. Yeah. 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 And I remember when we left in Glorious Bastards, I think the, the reason she hated it was that uh, she was just like, Ugh, I'm so tired of not- movies about Nazis. <laughs> But why that's the point. People, she's like, why are people still making movies about Nazis? Was her like biggest complaint about the, the film. To which my only reply was, um, because no one's done anything as bad since. <laughs> like, they're still the worst because they almost won. <laughs> well, and... And and they're wholly evil. Like that's that's the way that we have we have decided for them. The Nazis mm-hmm. are one of the few few groups in history that we will just point to and say, You are one hundred percent evil. Yeah, and if you want to make someone seem evil, you just compare them to Hitler. So it's it's that that's why we still yeah. make uh, movies about Nazis. And I thought his was a fantastic take on it and a lot of fun and kinda of being silly with it, you know, for lack of a better word. The fact that it was like this like group of like Jewish soldiers going like guerrilla style hunting and killing Nazis and that's all they're doing. Like how great is that? You can see it as like it is to me it's it's a precursor to Django in this like taking a marginalized group of people and sort of rewriting history to give them like a blood for blood type revenge story where it's like the Jews weren't there to fight the war. They were there to kill Nazis. And that was awesome. Well, and I mean, it It also, and, and you see this definitely with Django Unchained, it paints a picture of, I mean, yes, the Nazis are bad guys in in, Jen, uh, in Inglorious Bastards, but I mean, when you get down to it, it's the the bastards that are brutes, right? Yeah. Like the, the Nazis are relatively, uh, I won't say noble, but they're... They're definitely not portrayed as beasts, whereas the bastards, like they, they Are, kill dudes yeah. with baseball bats, and yeah. and and then in, in Django Unchained, it it presents a, a version of American history that is a lot messier than you get in traditional portrayals of American history of that time period, right? Yeah, and it's so I think we're harder. we're jumping. So I think we're jumping ahead here. We've like. Yeah, launched right. right into just talking about the movies. So I say what we should do is go back and talk through some of these films of his because 
I could talk about each of these movies for an entire podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> me too, me too. So should do you want to do this chronological, like start back with Reservoir Dogs and work our way through about the things we love about each of those films? Or do you want to just like uh, hop around or do you want to go backwards? What do you, what do you want? No, I'm good with starting chronologically. Uh, well, then let's let's start with Reservoir Dogs. Ah, oh, Reservoir Dogs. and Yeah, we've had this conversation about which is better, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. Right. And, yeah, and, and I think I you think come down dogs. slightly more on Reservoir Dogs, and I come down slightly more on Pulp Fiction. I think. Yeah, both films are probably in my top ten films of all time. But I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, I. What I like about Reservoir Dogs so much is the the roughness of it. The because in Pulp Fiction, he's clearly he's working with. Not not only does he have more money behind him but it's more carefully produced and and designed and crafted and and he doesn't have to accommodate for for kind of the the technology that he's using in the same ways yeah whereas in reservoir dogs he makes do with what he's got so mm -hmm. well yeah and and so as as a as a work he's really able to uh, show off his 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 cinematography and his his brilliance with film. Yeah, I know, and I I agree. I agree. I think it, it is like he like the, I think of the hallway shot in Reservoir Dogs. Whenever I'm thinking of like a great shot in Reservoir Dogs, where Harvey Keitel and and uh, Steve Buscemi, Mister Mister White and Mister mm, Pink, Pink, are talking in the bathroom. And the camera's way down the hall and you just see down the hallway and you see them kind of walking in and out of frame and how beautiful that shot is and how grungy it makes everything feel and how isolated they look and like it's just so beautiful. And all he had was like a warehouse and a camera. Yeah. And he made that work and probably some lights. But, you know, like he, he did some wonderful cinematography with what was there. And I think it's it's true of the whole thing. And like the torture scene with the ear cutting off mm -hmm. and the music and that like the camera swing away. And swing back like all of that is just so such a beautiful camera work and clever cinematography and clever direction that that's what makes that movie so great and the script is fantastic yeah yeah and and i think and and if i'm not mistaken i think it's one of those films that counts as an independent film yeah it was technically i think i think he got harvey Keitel to help put it together yeah yeah and so I mean, all of that put, put together makes it just such an impressive piece of cinema history that, mm -hmm. that I mean, when, within all that context, it's hard for me not to, not to put it just a little bit higher than Pulp Fiction. Just yeah, I, with the that. context of it, yeah. Because yeah. it was like, like there are very few directors who make a movie – and have it win an award at like the Sundance Festival or whatever, whatever festival it won an award at. And then from that moment on are considered one of the best directors. Yeah. Like, which is essentially what happened with Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> like from that moment on, it was like Tarantino is one of the greatest directors. And when Paul Fishing came out, everyone was like, got to see it. You know, well, and so. everyone was like, got to be in it. Yeah, true. So I see, I see what you mean by the context that you think is what pushes Reservoir Dogs over. To me, it's just the script is so beautifully written and so well performed, and uh, and I think uh, have you have you you've seen the Twitter feed, right? There's a Twitter feed that people tweeted Reservoir Dogs. That's awesome. And they did it in reverse order, so you read it scrolling downwards through the Twitter feed, and it's like got all the characters saying their lines who've been retweeted by it, 
and then all the stage directions and stuff are tweeted by the account. It is awesome. Like, it is so great. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. People check it out. It is so funny to read your way through Reservoir Dogs. Um, and that opening shot, which there was an edit in that opening shot, hey? Like, they took something out. Did they? Yeah. So, in the original, from what I when I read about it, uh, as the camera would pan around the table and, like, they were talking in the Madonna Dick monologue. Mm-hmm. Very, the famous, the infamous Madonna Dick monologue. Yes. Uh, like a virgin. There's uh there used to be a card before that that said something like uh, right eight of these men uh, of these eight men um all, all of the or only one will survive or something like that right or, or something like that like they were all gonna die except for one or something that was like uh, one of them's a cop and then the camera would pan around and then the whole time you're like left in that Tarantino who loves that sort of suspenseful. You know something's going to happen, but it makes takes as long as possible to make it happen, which is one of my favorite Tarantinoisms. And you, you sort of so then you watch the whole movie trying to figure out who the rat is. I can't remember what the card was going to say. I, I totally, I should have, I should have researched that a little more. No, no, no. I, I think I, you're, you're recalling for me. I think it's something along the lines of of these eight men, only one of them will survive or survives the movie or something like that. Yeah. And and he 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 does love that sort of uh, tension in, in in filmmaking of knowing how a scene is probably going to end, but letting you get there anyway. Yeah, that is one of the classic Tarantino moves of like, like uh, like the two hitmen in Pulp Fiction. Like they, we know they're hitmen and they're on their way to an apartment. And they go into the apartment and they start talking all cool about cheeseburgers and stuff and having this great conversation. And we know where they're going to kill them. And so the whole scene is played out under this like this uh, this dramatic tension, a dramatic irony, I think is the term of us us knowing and the characters not. Yeah, well, and and he's somebody who believes in, I mean, relatively stort, straightforward storytelling, right? Like it's. His his stories have twists and turns, but in the end, the story is pretty traditional. Simple, I would say. Yeah, simple. Not, not, yeah, not, simple. Uh, it's not like complicated. This then that then this then that kind of plots. Uh, like Reservoir Dogs is like they like I think the idea for the story was a bank heist where you don't see the heist. Yeah, and you just see all the aftermath. Um, but it is like they're just trying to figure out who the rat is, and then they figure out who the rat is. And then everybody dies. Yeah, Kill Kill Bill is it's it's a revenge tale, like it. <laughs> yeah, every, she every, hunts down these five people, kills them, and then goes kills Bill. Yeah, like it's you know there's the the plot itself is relatively simple, but how the characters color it and and how it's uh, how the world is built around it really adds to it. Yeah, but yeah, Reservoir Dogs to me is like uh, such a good script. Like it is, it's a stage play to me. Well, and and that's something I think we'll get to as we talk mer- further throughout him. I I really enjoy that a lot of his work probably fits on the stage. Uh, I mean, it's a very different show if you do it on stage, obviously, but it it could be a a script for for the stage as well as for the cinema. And what makes it cinema is his ability with a camera, but. You know, you could, yeah. his writing itself is so thoughtful. 
Yeah, the scripts are thoughtful, and then he he uses nice, beautiful sets. Gorgeous sets. And the camera and the, how he uses it in those sets and in those scenes is beautiful. That there's not, like, other than, I mean, when I think of Kill Bill, there's definitely, and, and Inglorious Bastards and, like, the newer ones, lots of set changes and stuff like that. But in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, it's like there are relatively few sets in those films. You know, there's, like, a couple diners, a couple houses, and, like, a car. You could do that on stage. Uh, so Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. So this this is your your favorite above uh, Reservoir. I love it. No. I love it for lots of reasons. One, the script is perfect, just like Reservoir Dogs. Like, I don't think we need to talk too much more about it uh, no. at the moment. And it is where you start seeing him perfect his art of the mundane conversation, you know, yeah. where finding the meaning in the meaningless. Like, uh, you see it in Reservoir Dogs with, like, the Madonna monologue at the beginning – the cop monologue in the bathroom. The commode monologue and yeah. stuff. But you don't see it as well as you do in Pulp Fiction with like that whole uh, Royale with cheese stuff at the beginning, which is just like you see like, oh, this is the perfect Tarantino. That, that, that scene is like the perfect Tarantino dialogue explanation ever. <laughs> like um, taking the, the the simple idea and like digging deeper and deeper into what it means and stuff and like. Uh, it's almost like it's a dialogue, but it's just a monologue with one person prompting. Like we did an improvised Tarantino, right? And that was like a lot of what we worked on. Uh, and like you see that in other scenes as well, like the whole thing about the drug dealer and the Cadillac and the silence between people and the conversation he has with Uma Thurman in the diner and the whole foot massage thing. Like all these wonderful, like simple conversations about nothing that it's like Seinfeld, but with more depth. <laughs> Seinfeld with more depth and a bunch of murder. A bunch of murder. Yeah, that's Tarantino basically. Um and also it's the it was the uh the chapter headings and stuff taken to that perfect craft as well, like where he perfected it. Because in Reservoir Dogs he uses it and it's all based on the characters. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Pulp Fiction he uses it in like like, no, this is this chapter is called this. You know? Um and it's like a, it, it's got a little story attached to it. Um and like uh, what, what, uh, Mrs. Wallace, what's what's the one? What's the Uma Thurman chapter called? Uh, Mrs. Wall. It's not Mrs. Wallace goes to town. It's uh, Vincent <laughs> Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Marcellus Wallace's wife. Yeah, that's what they call this grant. Um, and so like it introduces a new chapter, and and how it has like multiple story threads. Yeah, that all surround the same kind of characters. So it is like that pulp fiction idea, like like those cheap mag, like cheap old novels you'd buy. Uh, so I just love all of it. I love all of that, and uh, and it also on top of that. Sorry, did you want to say something about no, the no, writing? Because no. it's no, just perfect. Uh, is the casting in it of John Travolta, and sort of the re the rebirth of his career thanks to that movie, <laughs> because before that movie. I think he'd done like what? Look who's talking. It was like his oh. biggest movie before Top Fell Fiction came out, Which, and like great hadn't, film. Hadn't done much since Saturday Night Fever or Grease. Yeah, but casting John Travolta is like that Tarantino's ability to do that legacy casting that he loves to do, where he takes a character that we know as a greaser and like a a 1970s disco dancer. Yeah, and puts him in a hitman role and we can see those other movies in this movie. 
And you can see that John Travolta character growing up to be this character, you know, like it's not a huge leap. Uh, and then the dancing, of course, is where you're like, oh, my God, John Travolta. Well, and I mean, that led to, I think, Get Shorty, Broken Arrow, Face Off, like this this entire trend of John Travolta towards these more actiony movies. Yeah. And being like a, yeah, like a superstar. He became a superstar after that movie. He kind of faded after Saturday Night Fever. And then after Pulp Fiction, he shot up again. So it's like, it was amazing. And it is also our first Tarantino where we get to meet Samuel Jackson, Uma Thurman, uh, who he loves, both of them. Yeah. I don't know. I think him and Uma's relationship is... One of the weirdest? Yeah, it's complicated. But Samuel L. Jackson, who is like his guy. Yeah. Samuel Jackson has been in. Uh, was he in Kill Bill at all? Yep. He plays the piano player, and he right. also does the voiceover. Right. Okay. Then yeah, yeah. He man. Yeah, he he's, he's been in every movie since I think. Yeah. I don't know if was he in Four Rooms. I don't know if that counts. Ah, it doesn't really count. It's not a Tarantino movie. And I don't think he was in Death Proof either. Yeah. Well, and the the thing about Pulp Fiction is that I mean. In a lot of ways, that non-chronological storytelling, it it had this wonderful influence on on what people thought movies could do. Yeah, it changed how movies can tell stories. And Reservoir Dogs is sort of out of order, but not really. I mean, it's it's told straightforward with flashbacks. I think. Yeah, the the chapter headings lead to flashbacks about the characters. That's it. Not yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas you really get out, uh, out of order storytelling with with uh, Pulp Fiction. Mm. Oh, you know, it's also our introduction to Michael Madison is was in Reservoir Dogs, actually, not Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's it's such a wonderful film. It it works on a bunch of different levels. Rewatching it is filled with so much joy. Mm-hmm. And. It it is Tarantino. You're right. I think really perfecting a lot of his, or honing a lot of his style that you see in Reservoir Dogs and you see in True Romance. But you he know, didn't direct that. But yeah. But he wrote it. Yeah. 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 But doesn't doesn't really come to its own until you get to Pulp Fiction, where he, I mean as a very young storyteller in Hollywood has really shown a mastery over the craft. Yeah. It is where he'd polished it perfectly. I thought that's, that's what I, that's why, that's why I always lean towards Pulp Fiction because it's got, it's so much better polished and like perfected. Uh, and in that it's just like amazing. Well, it's, it, it reminds like the, the difference between true romance and the, the Sicilian, uh, monologue dialogue thing that happens and what you get from something like the gold watch story from christopher walken yeah in pulp fiction like the the difference between those two pieces of writing shows how far he comes well and even the like the sicilian monologue i think is one of the best monologues from true romance one of the best parts in that whole movie oh for sure but it is totally when you watch it filmed so not tarantino yeah. That it feels weird. You know, it feels like you're like someone stole and ruined his movie or something. Uh but but you can see that that monologue is like, ah, that was him finding one of those those little monologues to talk about. Yeah. Those yeah. little anecdotes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then the, so that brings us up to Kill Bill, which again is where to me I love uh, – this transition from like oh i guess to jackie brown i just skipped right over jackie just brown. skip jackie brown it's fine <laughs> who cares we can do jackie brown i guess i mean it's just not that great i, I mean i feel like you, it was him trying to just do a normal movie um because it's just sort of like done in order with camera shots yeah i i mean he was i mean it's it's him you know really honoring the the black exploitation genre but yeah i mean you know he never comes back to Robert De Niro. He never comes back to Michael Keaton or Bridget Fonda. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird thing. And I mean, it's 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 a fine film. There's no particular problem with it, but it isn't. It it just feels so not Tarantino to me. Yeah, which is what I never liked about it. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So let's just skip right to Kill Bill. So straight to Kill Bill then, because Kill Bill is where he leaves his. Um, kind of gangster crime world and heads into like almost like I don't know superhero samurai world. Yeah, well I mean it's a it's a, a martial arts film. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's really the first time he's outside of the traditional North American uh film genres. Yeah, but still somewhat within it because he does keep it in North America for the most part. Well, and and that's what's that's it's it's this blending of worlds uh, that that we're going to see again and again with his later work that mm -hmm. works so well in, yeah. in this one. Yeah, and uh, and Kill Bill Volume One, Volume Two. Again, it was a cinematic like super show to me because it was like ah, oh, it's in two parts. Oh my god, I can't wait till next year. And the, again, it, so it's him taking his like out of order storytelling again from Pulp Fiction and using it in like an uh, amazing way. I think with Kill Bill. And I think Kill Bill, the out-of-order storytelling is crucial to the movie, whereas in mm -hmm. Pulp Fiction, I think it just makes it more fun. Yeah. You know, because in Pulp Fiction, if you did that movie straight through, like, chronologically, you know, like, starting uh, – because it does start in the morning with the hitmen on their way to the mm -hmm. guy's house, right? And then going straight through to like the whole next day when Butch is in his fight and stuff like that. And we watch Vincent Vega get killed and everything. Like, and we have the restaurant scene like in the middle uh, as opposed to at the very end with the honey bunny and things. It would still be good. Yeah. You know, it was just like he took some of the better scenes and moved them into different places so that it had it ended on that super awesome scene in the restaurant. Yeah. Whereas in Kill Bill – the the story doesn't work as well, I think, if it's told in order. Yeah, we lose a lot of the surprise. Like if we saw the wedding first, <laughs> it would ruin a lot of the the mystery of the film. You know, like if we knew at the very beginning that she was pregnant and Bill shot her in the head and the baby survived. Like if we knew all that. Yeah before the movie starts then like there's no real tension in a lot of those scenes and the mystery is gone which is one of the things that i think is actually kind of weak about the movie is that like pulp fiction is great because no matter how you watch it it works whereas kill bill a lot of that movie the surprise is so important yeah well i guess it's it's not so important but it makes it more enjoyable yeah like to have that the very end i think it's the very end of the first movie where um. Yeah. See, I think I think the doesn't the nurse scene happen at the end of the first movie. Uh, I no. I think it, I it know, happens. But, 
I it's, think it's one of the first scenes. Oh, maybe in, it's the first scene of the second movie. No, I think it's one of the first scenes of the first movie because isn't it? Well, because I know she goes to kill him and then Bill calls her and stops her from doing it. But isn't he? You know, because um, there's this, there's the scene at the very end of the first movie where uh, Daryl Hine is talking to Bill and he says, does she know her daughter's alive? But oh, she's wait, not... no, that wouldn't be the same scene. Yeah, okay, no, that's right because Cause, cause she's it's... awake at that point. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's not in a coma anymore. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so, so the thing for me is that it's one of the only times where Tarantino plays a trick on the viewer. Explain that. Well, with 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 the 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 bride and the the pregnancy mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff, it's it's meant to be something that you can um, like he he uses cinema to trick you instead of using just telling you a story. And and so because by the fact that it's out of order, mm-hmm. right? It the surprise comes from the fact that the story is told out of order, as opposed to you know the the coolness of the surprise itself. Like in Reservoir Dogs, there's no there's no tricky surprise that happens from the from the film. Pulp Fiction, the same sort of thing, and even in his later stuff, it's he doesn't use cinema to trick the audience. Well, I think uh, he does. He doesn't need to use the cinema to trick us and kill Bill or to surprise us. You know, like finding out that she was pregnant and that her daughter is uh, still alive. Mm-hmm. He could have done that in the normal story, like line structure, and it would have, I think, worked just the same. Um, like in, like in Reservoir Dogs, where we find out he's a cop after he shoots Mister Blonde, right? Right. And then he has the whole conversation about how he's a cop. And then we get the flashback and we see it all through his perspective, how he joins the gang and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We still get the surprise in the story and then we go flashback and get the surprise better in the backstory. And that's sort of what happens in Kill Bill where we find out that her daughter's alive and then it's not till like the next movie where we get the flashback of the wedding and and all that. So I think uh, – I see what you mean, but I don't think it's as bad as you're making it out to be. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like it's not terrible. It just like that's – generally I, Tarantino doesn't use – like he, he's, he's not inter- – he, it, it's not his style. It just – it feels like for me to, to use cinema in a tricky sort of way. Mm, I see, yeah. So do you it's, – it's, it's because you can't watch Kill Bill chronologically in order if you rearranged all the scenes – and if you did, it wouldn't be as good. That that kind of bothers you. Well, it reminds me of Memento, which has nothing to do with Tarantino whatsoever. Sure, but yeah. Memento doesn't hold up if you watch it the chronologically. If you watch it forward, yeah. Yeah, you watch it forward, uh, and and that for me says that the trick of of the way that they tell the story is what makes it good, as opposed mm. to the. Um, the story itself. And I, I just like well-told stories. So it, it's not that I'm saying it's really, because I still love Memento as a movie. I think it's fun and wonderful, but uh, the story itself isn't as strong in that regard for me. I so, see what you mean. So it's how he's telling it is what makes it good as opposed to it just being a good narrative. Yeah, which isn't I to think, take away from yeah, it. Well, and I think Kill Bill is still a good narrative anyway, but he, but the way he tells it makes it better. 
that might be a better way to put it than I'm that's what it. I think. Yeah, that's what I think. So I, th- I see what you mean that he's tricking us there to make the story better. But I yeah. think he's not. I wouldn't use the word trick because it gives like a negative connotation. I would say he's using it to make it even better. Yeah, the way he tells the story enhances the. Yeah, yeah, that's a way to put it. Yeah, because like the the fight where she goes to Japan and kills what's her name. Yeah. Uh, is that like the first one she goes to kill? Um, Chronologically? Oh, you're not kill? talking the one that happens, the, the animation scene. No, no. I'm talking like where she goes and actually has the huge sword fight against a crazy 88. Yeah, yeah. That's in the first one. But I think chronologically, where is that in like the, her placement of killing these people? That's a good question. I don't know. Is that is that the first movie? I thought that was the second movie. I think that's the end of the first movie, isn't it? Ah, God, man, we should have researched this a little bit more. <laughs> I, I'm pre- I'm pretty sure, like that's that happens at the 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 yakuza army and all that in the restaurant. Yeah, that's yeah, that's Crazy Eighty Eight. It's at the end of the first movie. Yeah, okay, it is Kill Bill Volume One. Yeah, where she. It is okay, so it ends the first movie with this huge assault on oh and that's right because then it's the bodyguard of, or like the 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 uh, lucy Liu's friend yeah. who gets her arm cut off that's the yeah. one who's talking to bill at the end when he says does she know her daughter's alive exactly exactly so she kills oren first and then she goes after what's her name the the good girl woman with the kid mm-hmm. um and then she goes after bud and l and, and bill so like when she goes after so the so if they did the big huge killing crazy eighty eight first in the movie, and then she went and did the fight in the kids in the house with the kid, mm-hmm. would not have been as exciting. Yeah, to see it in that order. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, well, it would have it would have been an anticlimactic fight to see her fight in the kitchen after we just saw her kill eighty eight people. <laughs> so I think that's why he shifted it around. So it made the movie better. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. That's fair. I mean, especially given, you know, how great all of those fights are on their own and, you know, giving them their right moments and letting them breathe in the right ways is important. I think you're right. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about that fight because it is incredible where she kills the crazy 88. It is. uh, So this is where Tarantino's violence comes into this conversation because we haven't talked about it too much. No. His use of violence and how there's like two kinds of violence Tarantino uses. Where he uses that like hyper real violence, and then like that uh, hyper hyper violence. <laughs> what would you call it? <laughs> well, I, I would I would say he has two types of violence: one violence for the purpose of shocking, and violence for the purpose of beauty or entertainment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because like, there's the violence in Kill Bill where she is uh, is in black and white. And you see a close-up of her face with bloody nose and it looks like a she's been horribly hurt and it's terrifying. And she says, Bill, is your baby? And the gun goes off in her head. It kind of explodes as the camera cuts, mm-hmm. which is like real. It feels real and it's mm-hmm. terrifying. Yeah. And then there's the violence where she's fighting the crazy 88 and she cuts someone's arm off and blood squirts out. Yeah. Uh, and they did the scene in black and white. Which I thought I thought was a censorship thing. Was it? Yeah, I thought the censors did, there was too much red blood or something. But it could have just been a stylistic choice. I don't know. Either way, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, and like this this is the thing. He gets criticized a lot for the violence in his movies. 
Yeah. Which, I mean, is part of his point with it. Like, he, movies, movies are filled with things that are terrible and violent and horrible. And the way that we hide them and disguise them and, and have kind of become okay with a lot of this terrible stuff is kind of absurd. And, yeah. and, and so he, he goes the extra mile to shock you because it should be shocking. Yeah. I think my favorite reference to his, like, or him talking about violence, like the differences is, is Django. And uh, I think he refers to it as like the violence that happens in the daytime which is all the violence that happens to the slaves. Right. Uh, and how horrific it all is. And it's in broad daylight that this is happening. And then there's the violence that happens at night, which is sort of the revenge violence, like say goodbye to her and then he shoots her and she flies off camera, you know, and like that sort of violence, which is, and, and the gunfights and all that, which is sort of fun. Um, And so like, it's the, those two kinds of violence and Django has both really nicely juxtaposed, like literally in daylight and, and night. Yeah. Uh, and Kill Bill has that kind of violence as well. Although I think more it leans toward the fun violence because the realistic violence, the only real places you see it is in her dying on the floor. And you could maybe say when she rips out what's her name's eye. Ooh, right. Yeah. Which is <laughs> terrifying. Well, but like w one of the things about his violence is that people are complaining about the what they call the gratuitous violence in his movies and that sort of stuff. But how does how does Kill Bill open with the this narrative about the bride who has been in a coma for four years and has been repeatedly sexually assaulted by yeah. one of the uh, hospital workers? Like yeah. like that is incredibly violent and and graphic in a lot of ways, it's... and yet. Yeah, it's horrific. Yeah, but the problem with the movie is, you know, these sword fights where a guy is gushing blood. And yeah. I think I think one of Tarantino's points is, come on, guys, let's get our priorities right here. Yeah, which violence matters most? Yeah. Yeah. And That's a great point. Um, otherwise, Kill Bill is just such a fun fantasy revenge story. Uh, and again, uh, has that excellent uh, legacy casting with David Carradine. As as Bill, which is like you see him and you see Kung Fu yep. and his whole history doing that television show on screen with him when he is talking to her. So you instantly believe that he is this samurai master. Yeah. 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 The, and yeah. Sorry, go. Well, no, it just that it, it, there there might not be a better piece of casting uh, in in his entire body of work for Tarantino, in, in that Carradine, because of who he is and who he has been, you 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 believe everything about him instantly, and it's it, it works so well. We've talked about this before. It's the same as at the end of Cabin in the Woods when um, Sigourney Weaver shows Sigourney up, yeah. Weaver is cast as the director and. And it works so well because of who Sigourney Weaver is throughout the history of cinema. And yeah. same thing with David Carradine. Yeah, totally. He's he's fantastic at doing that, uh, Tarantino. I love it. Um, and like uh, oh, the other thing with Kill Bill that is great. I forgot. I was too busy thinking about how great David Carradine is. Yeah, too busy just thinking about David Carradine. 
I don't think I've got anything else to say. I mean, I could obviously say a ton more about Kill Bill, but yeah, but let's move on. Let's move on to uh, to what I consider. This is where I start considering it. We've moved into a new era of Tarantino because mm-hmm. I assume we're going to skip Death Proof. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 do it. Because neither of us are too interested in talking about it. But we move into Inglorious Bastards, Django, and the Hateful Eight, as you call it, is westerns. <laughs> I I I don't even. It's not even me that's calling it. He calls it as westerns. So because uh, I see because t- I see it as like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown are like those early kind of like. Uh, criminal sort of Tarantino feel. And then we get into Kill Bill where we move into more of his uh, he's entered into style and genre stuff a bit, but still very Tarantino, very criminal element very, you know, all that. And then once we get into Inglorious Django and Hateful, we are in a very new era of Tarantino. Well, it's it's Tarantino as the mega blockbuster for for starters. Like uh, I guess. Kill Bill, Kill Bill for sure. They they were they were big, good movies. But I think Inglorious and Django and Hateful all represent like a, a version of the director that is, you know, known publicly and and makes his films just make money. Yeah, true. He could make anything now. Yeah, although uh, maybe not after Hateful Eight. Ooh. We'll get to that. But uh, so Inglorious. Inglorious Bastards, yeah. The first of his westerns, which is not a western. It's a spaghetti western set in World War II, but that's fine. That's fine. Anyway, I loved Inglorious Bastards when I saw it. And is there anyone who didn't other than, other than, other than wife? your wife? Um, maybe. I don't know. I have no idea if people didn't love it. But I loved so much about it. I loved the feel of it. I loved the look of it. I loved the fact that it was in so many languages. I loved his retelling of the story. I loved Brad Pitt being in it because mm-hmm. to me that was like uh, kind of funny. It was like uh, he took like this superstar, like this mega actor, like Brangelina, like the Brad of like the, the actor of all actors and put him in this hilarious role in his film. And I loved it. I don't know. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but I think that's why. Well, it it was such a weird departure in some ways. It felt... Yeah, for um, Tarantino and Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's the thing. It and and the film wasn't all about Brad Pitt. Like it, you you thought that it was, but Brad Pitt is he, he's not he the is, star. Yeah, yeah, he is a main character, but the the main story is is actually the story of Shoshana. Shoshana and the the Jew hunter. What do they call him? The, yeah, the Jew hunter. Yeah, Hans Landa. Yeah, Hans Landa. Like that yeah. that's the main real main story. Yeah. But which which is why Brad Pitt ends up being such a a fun uh casting choice for that because he he really seems like he chose that just because he wanted to be in this film and he wanted to play play the role and have fun with it and he did. Yeah. And like that opening scene uh at the French farmhouse with the daughters and the guy like washes his face and stuff. La Pedite. And like has him in and he drinks the milk and they have that like again this Tarantino at his best uh um dramatic irony where we eventually he just shows us that there's Jew a Jewish family hiding under the floorboards. Mm-hmm. And like totally keep like then the conversation continues on about milk and all of this sort of stuff and then they switch into English and et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but such a beautiful scene. Yeah, that and that scene that that's what an opening fifteen twenty minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Like it 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 takes its time. It goes. It's careful, and the tension continues to build in there, and driven almost entirely by Christoph Waltz. Yeah, and sets up the bad guy perfectly. You know, it's almost like the opening of Pulp Fiction, except much more terrifying. Much, much, much more terrifying. And in Pulp Fiction, we like them, and in this, we don't. But we well, do kind of like them. Yeah, I mean, he he is likable. He's just an evil Nazi. So yeah, I mean, I remember when I left Inglorious Bastards. The thing that made me again love it more than anything was the realization that every character in the film was a bastard. As in they betrayed somebody and did something that you would be like, you're such a bastard. How dare you do that? Um, like the French guy Lapadite betrays these Jewish people under his floorboards. You know, um, the Jew hunter betrays Nazi Germany. Um, the the uh, um, uh, uh, Brad Pitt betrays the Jew hunter, you know, and turns on him and carves the the swastika into his forehead and stuff and like and, and throughout the whole film Shoshana she ends up burning the place down the super war hero ends up trying to like rape her or something like it just it just like every single character is a bad person no yeah. one in it is altruistic except and this is my favorite one of my favorite moments in the film the German soldier who refuses to give up the location of his men yeah and the bear Jew comes out Right? Remember they call the bear Jew because he's not giving it up? And he goes up to him and he's like, what did you get this medal for? And For killing Jews? And he looks him in the eye and he says, yeah, for bravery. <laughs> and then they beat his head in with a baseball bat. Kind of like the only person in this film that has any integrity, we beat his head in with a baseball bat incredibly violently. He has the second most violent death in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the most violent death. Uh, I think you you they spend a lot of time on Hitler's body exploding with machine gun bullets. But Hitler's body with machine gun bullets is that sort of like funny violence that Tarantino does. Like it's so over the top and hilarious. Whereas that violence is like they just smash his head in with a baseball bat. That is unbelievable. Um, but I just love that that whole idea that there's that everyone in it is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. They are all inglorious. Yeah, and 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 the movie is just having fun with itself. Uh, like be, after that opening scene with uh, with Hans Landa, um, mm-hmm. I think the movie just has fun entirely. There are, is it tense? I guess there's one more tense moment where Shoshana is having um, dessert with. Uh, oh, there's two more of those scenes. Yeah, the dessert scene with Hans Landa is super tense. Because we're terrified because we know that she's the girl that got away. And the scene in the bar. Oh, right. Yeah, the bar scene. I, how can I forget the bar scene? Yeah, where he's like, he's got an English-German accent, which is, the again, made that guy's career, right? Ugh. Yeah, a fast bender. Yeah, such yeah. a huge, such a great breakout role for that guy. I mean, maybe it was in other movies first, but that was, to me, his breakout role. Well, and but like the thing about that scene, the difference between that bar scene and the opening scene, the bar scene is hilarious. Like, oh, yeah, when they're playing the game with the cards on their head, yeah, headbands, yeah, 
great like it's it's such a hilarious scene whereas the opening one no one is going to suggest that it's hilarious whatsoever no it is not it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying but it is such a fun and that's the thing that i love about the movie is that up until the moment where they actually end up killing hitler Mm -hmm. you don't realize that it's it's meant to be this alternate history Mm-hmm. like like you 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 obviously know that it's not real but it all seems like it's taking place within the backdrop of the real war yeah and then they kill hitler and you and it's this great moment where the entire film just kind of shifts where you go oh that's Wait not what i that what, didn't what? happen <laughs> <laughs> hitler did not get murdered in the middle of a theater in france <laughs> yeah yeah, it is. It it is such a fun film. Christoph Waltz is perfect in it. So, uh, yeah. All the actors are great in it. Even Samuel Jackson's narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, and then we get into what I call his westerns, <laughs> which is Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. And Django Unchained, I only watched just this last year. I didn't see it until last year. Okay, okay. like as in like calendar year twenty fifteen, near the end of the year too. Right, right. But I watched it twice because it was so good. Well, and it, and and again, you and I have talked about this. It is one of those movies that has to be watched twice. It definitely does because the first time through Django, I was in shock for so much of it, mm-hmm. and in like like eyes almost closing for so much of it that I could not appreciate the actual filmmaking of it uh and the second watch through now when i was ready to see all those scenes then i could appreciate the filmmaking of it a little more and the storytelling of it but the first time through i was just like almost in in tears sometimes it was so horrific uh and not even the scenes necessarily the scenes of like the the mandingo fighting but just like the scenes of like the 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 slavers in the fields and stuff and you're like oh my god this is terrifying Yep the the dog attack. Yeah, the dog attack, and it's like this is this uh, this is how horrible it was. Yeah, and and that's the thing he he puts a very ugly lens on on something that gets romanticized so much, and and I'm not saying that that we look back on on this time period and we go, oh man, that was such a great time to be alive in in the United States, especially for black people. But like movies like Twelve Years a Slave, and that put put a more romantic lens on what Tarantino at least claims should be thought of as absolutely and wholly horrific. Yeah, and in, in that in Django Unchained, it feels that way. Yeah, when you watch it, you are you see like uh, yeah, because like when you think of uh, what was what was slavery like. And you try to imagine in your head and you picture like black people in fields picking cotton, right? And you picture chained together uh, working on the highway or railroad or something like that, you know, and singing songs and things like that that are all like beautiful and soulful. Uh, You do not think of two black men forced to fight each other to the death for white people's entertainment in a fancy dining room. And the moment you think of that, it almost breaks you that that happened. Yeah. Yeah, it it doesn't let you live in in a happy version of that history, or at least a 
happy is such the wrong word, but a a plain version of that history. It it and 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 this is the thing. Like lots of movies will show you uh, th that time period and the horrors of it. Uh, I mean, or or even something more recent like The Color Purple, which I think shows uh, the the South in the you know twenties and thirties. Uh, the American South, and it shows some of the horror of it, but it also shows some of the kind of beauty and romance that comes out of can come out of that. Yeah. For Tarantino, it's all about the horror of it again and again and again. Yeah. And and in some ways, one of the things that one of the critiques of the movie can be that Tarantino has no right to tell this story. Like it's it's not his his sure, story. Yeah, sure. You know he. But the point that I really feel with Django Unchained and how graphic he makes this this uh, this experience of slavery, it has absolutely it's it's not meant for African Americans. It's meant for American white people to go. This is the kind of heritage that I am a part of. Yeah, sure, that's a good way to put it. Because it is like there's no way you can look back on the American slave trade and think like, well, why aren't people just over it yet? After you watch Django Unchained. Because exactly. like watching Django Unchained, you're like, yeah, you know what? Uh, we, we should still be talking about this and we should still be kind of, kind of fucked up about it. Like our whole country. And like, yeah, as opposed to this attitude that is was I, I don't know I, I mean I guess it's still prevalent this attitude of like I mean it was so long ago just get over it you know it wasn't me it was my ancestors you know like that attitude it's like no you know what we should still be fixing this yeah because of of how bad it was and those effects don't go away you know in a hundred years let alone overnight and so and it's not one of those like you should be over it. And you're, it's just being passed down, like this hate being passed down for no reason. It's like, no, there's a reason. Well, and and for me, it, one of the things that it does is, as a Canadian, it, it it serves to remind me of just our own experiences with Indigenous peoples in Canada. Yeah, where, for sure. Where we we don't have a film uh, or or a piece of art that really does the same sort of thing that tarantino it seems like was trying to do with django unchained in that way for us yeah i mean if tarantino made a movie about uh about the um residential schools. residential schools um in canada i think every canadian would feel like the worst forever <laughs> like it well, would just unchained us. makes me feel guilty for american slavery which is <laughs> yeah like, which i mean that's the point but at the same time there's something that's almost absurd about the fact that i'm i have that experience despite being so disconnected from it yeah and it's it's uh so so django unchained did an amazing job of real life violence absolutely and making you feel it and then giving you at the end this cathartic release of all this like uh hate and like disgust you've been feeling through the whole film where everybody gets shot everybody Everybody gets shot, and I loved the choice to have uh, have um, the dentist shoot Calvin Candy. Yeah, as opposed to Django, I thought it was a great like, like, uh, and to have the German be the one that is disgusted by slavery, especially considering what Glorious Bastards is about. You know, 
Well, it, it, exactly, right? Because Tarantino, he doesn't have the right to 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 write a story about how Germans should feel about World War II. Yeah. Like that's he 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 knows that as a filmmaker. But at the same time, he can take a character and and have him have that character feel guilty about it. Yeah. And there's also some great casting in Django that I really liked. I loved DiCaprio. Um, I loved DiCaprio's casting. Again, he took a superstar and put him in his movie, which was like kind of out of place and shocking. But at the same time, to make Calvin Candy this darling, having Leonardo DiCaprio play him was perfect because he's like everyone's Hollywood darling. Everyone had a crush on Leonardo DiCaprio. Everyone. Everyone. I still have a crush on Leonardo DiCaprio. And so having him play Calvin Candy is just like the perfect, like, look at how, look, he seems like a wonderful gentleman. And yet this is something he accepts. And not only that, but lives every day of his life. Yeah. And like to him, uh, his slaves are like pets. You know, and like Samuel L. Jackson's character as well. Again, what a beautiful character. What a wonderful portrayal and a perfect casting of Samuel L. Jackson. Which which is funny because all the supporting cast in that movie are great and Jamie Foxx is just Jamie Foxx. He's okay. Yeah. Jamie Foxx is I think my least favorite part of that film. <laughs> yeah. And and part of it is I'm not I, – I, I don't want to blame Jamie Foxx for that because I don't know actually if there's an actor that you could put in that role who I would be super satisfied with. Like the reason I think that Jamie Foxx you know, works at all in there is because he's not an action movie star. Yeah. Like it, if it was someone uh, like Will Smith or Denzel Washington, you would lose some of the the feeling of like just weirdness because it's supposed to feel weird when Jamie Foxx is um, in that role because that's the way Tarantino casts. He casts actors for unexpected roles and yet at the same time expected roles. Yeah, I think I think originally this is the story I heard. I have no way to verify this, so do not use this as truth. That Will Smith was going to be cast as Django. Hmm. That was the story I heard, but he turned it down, I think, because he didn't get to kill the bad guy. <laughs> That's the story I heard. That because he didn't get to kill Candy, he, he was like, no, I, I, if I do it, I, I want to kill the guy. And Tarantino was like, no. And so that's why I he believe, didn't get the role. I believed it up until that. Like I'm, I'm like I'm on board, and then I'm like Will Smith. Like <laughs> Will Smith is definitely an actor who wants the main role, but do I, I'm not sure if he he'd be like, no, I also have to kill the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, um, that's great though. That's that's a wonderful story. Uh, so yeah, here's the here it is. It's a it's a Guardian article, um, Guardian.com. So take that with a grain of whatever. Uh, Will Smith has revealed he turned down Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained because he felt he was not being offered the lead role. That I buy. So, yeah, he's like, Django wasn't the lead, so it was like, I need to be the lead, Smith told them. The character was the lead. I was like, no, Quentin, please, I need to kill the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. he didn't feel like he was the lead role. Because of that. That's absurd. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Django also that I liked was the – the collaborator feeling of it, the idea of being a collaborator, which is almost like saying, hey, all of you watching this, you are you you being a white American are a collaborator in this. Like you yeah. are a part of this. And the the whole thing with like the his sister, you know, who his widowed sister, who's like super old, mm -hmm. uh, who walks the the woman 
uh, uh, Brumhilda to like just be raped essentially, you know, like, and it's a woman taking her to be raped and Samuel L. Jackson as the, the, like, uh, the head of the house mm-hmm. the, the, that was like working to keep all the other slaves in line and punishing them and stuff like that. And it's like such a, what a collaborator he is, you know? And you could even say that the, the white guy who was helping Django, um, the dentist, in some ways is a collaborator against other white people. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> M- might be, might be reaching. Might be there. reaching there. But he, but so like the whole collaborator element of it, I found to be extra disgusting, which yeah. is what makes it so great when he shoots her and she gets pulled off screen. That, that unbelievable shot. It's like, what, what's her name again? Say goodbye to Miss Candy. Um, it's nope. I'm not going to remember it. I don't remember her name, but he's like, say goodbye to Miss Clara. And she says, goodbye, Miss Clara. Bang. And kills her. And yeah. everyone cheers because you hate her so much because she's a horrible person. Yeah, it works. It works really well. What else you got to say about Django before we move on to the hateful eight? I, that's, that's about it for me. I mean, I think, I think we covered, uh, covered most of its feeling. So the hateful eight. We watched together. We did. Uh, in the theaters. At which, like 11 in the morning. At 11 in the morning. Went to a matinee. It was great. After it finally came out in normal theaters and not on the, whatchamacallit. The 70 millimeter. Yeah. And I must say, watching it, I think on 70 millimeter, it might have looked better. I'm sure it would have looked better, which is not to say that it looked bad, but because some of them see. like it looked so crisp, those landscapes that I, I was almost picturing it with that kind of like flickery, like a grainy look that a 70 millimeter would offer. Yeah, it. And I mean, so so there were a couple things against this movie that were going to make it hard for it to to do well. Mm-hmm. The first is that. Tarantino decided to shoot it on 70 millimeter, release it first on 70 millimeter and tell everyone that's the only way to watch the movie. And then, yeah. you know, there are maybe 200 cinemas in North America where you can watch it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> great. Thanks, Tarantino. I appreciate all your help. A little pretentious, the, little pretentious move there. Totally, totally. Which is unsurprising from Tarantino, but still dick move. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other thing is that it opened against Star Wars. Like yeah. not even against Star Wars. Star Wars opened ten days before it, but still, it it had no shot. Yeah, you're fighting against something huge. Yeah, so which made it a great movie for us to go see because no one was there. But mm-hmm. and at eleven in the morning on a Saturday it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? If we had seen Star Wars at eleven in the morning on that Saturday, it probably would have been pretty packed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you think of the movie? We didn't really talk about it much after. Because uh, we, we were saving it kind of for the podcast. So, like, what did you think of The Hateful Eight? I – so I I loved it. Uh, I – and and it took me a while to figure out what I loved about it because it – in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the Agatha Christie novel and then there were none. Okay. In that – in in the way that it's this this murder mystery sort of feel to it mm-hmm. contained in a really isolated environment yeah and it just it worked really well for a genre that we don't see those sorts of murder mysteries anymore like i don't i don't know if i've ever seen a murder mystery film <laughs> like in like as as, other, as an adult other than like clue 
Well, yes, other than the Clue movie, which... But yeah, like it, it doesn't happen that often anymore. You're right. The my- mysteries are not that kind of uh, one location, lightning crashing outside, like kind of yeah. everyone's trapped with a murder mystery, which is what this film is. Yeah, exactly. And and like I've seen Murder on the Orient and that sort of stuff, which are all which is based on an Agatha Christie. But at the same time, those sorts of films don't get made now. Is I think my point. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. And so it was a genre that I was so excited to to actually get to witness on stage, especially when it was being told fairly fairly well with fun characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought the movie had a wonderful build to it. Like the the pacing of it was like great, and the looked fantastic. And a lot of it it was was actually a lot funnier than I expected it to be. Like a Filled lot of like jokes. jokes. Like like you have to nail the door shut. You know, and every time someone knocks on the door, they all have to yell and you have to nail the door shut and stuff. And the whole thing with the, the Mexican guy, what was his name? Bob. Bob. Right? Like just like like lots of just like wonderful gags or like the playing Silent Night on the piano and things like that. The story Samuel L. Jackson tells about his son, the, the like old southern war hero's son mm-hmm. sucking his dick in the snow or something like that. Like – uh, all those is just like so, so many jokes that I laughed a lot through the movie unexpectedly. Yeah. It, and, and, and I mean, the, the thing was he, he diffuses the tension in inherent to the scene again and again with, yeah. with humor. Yeah. Cause you can't just constantly build the tension. You have to break it once in a while. Right. And like in a movie like this, yeah, you have to like, okay, we're all friends now. And then somebody poisons the coffee. Which I think the my least favorite part of the film was those was the narration from Quentin Tarantino. It was terrible narration. Yeah. Like I, and 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 we, so we didn't see it in 70 mm, so we didn't have a 15 minute intermission. Yeah. And the film is meant to have a break. Yeah. And the inter and so the the narration I think might come across more naturally once you've kind of walked away from the film and come back into it. Because mm, does, does the narration happen after the break? I think Where it's so. Like, this I, is what you missed while you were away, and they do yeah. little. Hmm. Uh, that would make a little more sense to me because I think also the inspiration for this was like old television westerns, right? Mm-hmm. Where everyone's while they have an episode where it's just a bunch of bad guys. Or as or the Batman, the animated series, where it's all the bad guys sitting around playing cards, talking about how they almost got Batman. <laughs> um, so one of those kind of show episodes. Yeah, I think that's what he was inspired by, Batman, for sure. No, but um, yeah, totally, <laughs> I get what you're totally. saying. Yeah, but the two-parter where like you watch it and then there's a a week between the episode, and so you need like the what happened last time on yeah the hateful eight. Uh, so I, I think it might have been a little more natural, but I didn't like that. I didn't like. I don't. I didn't. It didn't feel necessary in the put together film. No, and I didn't like his voice. It took it took me out of it, and uh, because he's not a great voice actor, he's no. got a weird voice, and it's so clearly Tarantino reading it. Which is funny because Samuel L. Jackson plays Samuel L. Jackson when he's narrating Inglorious Bastards, and you buy it. Well, yeah, you told because he's a great actor. You know, yeah. like that's and the what, difference. Samuel Jackson is a good voice actor. But that's what I think Tarantino was thinking. He's like, oh, yeah, it worked great when Tarantino just or when Jackson did it in Inglorious. I'm going to just do this as me and it's going to be fine. Yeah. And 
it didn't work at all. No, it didn't work at all. It it it, ru- it, it ruined that moment for me because I was like, oh man, Tarantino, man, you don't have to be in all of your movies. Yeah, I've sworn a lot in this episode. I'm sorry, but you, it is a Tarantino you, episode, so deal with it. I I will deal with we'll it. Mark it that, I'll, I'll mark it as explicit. Anyway, continue. <laughs> that aside, like the the film has such fun characters. You know, uh, everyone from Samuel L. Jackson as a bounty hunter to Kurt Russell as the hangman to Tim Roth as the little man. Like, everyone is a fun, thoughtful, nuanced character. Yeah, that's true. And um, I think actually another part of the movie that I that I, I found was – so he did like his out-of-order storytelling a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, most part it was all one go though, but then it did have that cutback scene where they show how the bad guys arrive at the at the hideout. And that was where I was less excited. I got less excited about the story after that point because of the fact that all the people that were in the room were in on it mm-hmm. and they were all the bad guys and there was a guy hiding in the basement. I was like, oh, that feels like a weird like twist that I could not have seen coming no matter what. You know, and I felt a little like like the carpet got pulled out from under me. But I think part of the style of those murder mysteries is that. So I yeah. forgive it to an extent. But at the same time, it disappointed me a little, and I kind of wished it would have only been one of them was the bad guy. Well, if I'm not mistaken, and then there were none, the the murderer is somebody who we thought was killed off. Oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe that is what it is, right? Like, I, th- I think we think so, like one of the second people to, killed, to get killed off wasn't actually killed off, and we mm-hmm. thought that they were the the murderer. Yeah. Yeah, because like once the guy shoots from the basement and then they cut back, it kind of like let the story gets less exciting. But when they're all like up against the wall and they're trying to figure out who's the bad guy and who po- who poisoned the coffee, like that that's all really exciting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, actually, now that I think of it, Murder in the Orient, I think I think that one ends with it turns out everybody on the train was complicit. Ah, nice. So, I mean, that that kind of style of twist is definitely part of the genre. And and so I think Tarantino was going for it. At the same time, you're right. It does feel a little strange. Although having Channing Tatum just show up at the end of the movie is It was pretty great. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But it was like a uh, – yeah, it it felt like shoddy storytelling where you're like, uh, I don't know who the murderer is. Eh, All of them are the murderer. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's say they showed up all together and did this whole elaborate plan to make it work. But you knew something was up because the Mexican was there and he said that she'd gone to visit his, her mother and like Samuel L. Jackson knew that wasn't going to be right and he was kind of on to them. Yeah. But you didn't know exactly what. So that was kind of cool. But then it did become like this almost farce when everyone was in on it. Well, and it, you know, had fun little moments like the let Samuel Jackson carried a letter from Lincoln. That was a not actually a letter from Lincoln. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and the haberdashery itself is such a cool little place. Yeah. Yeah. It had a lot of cool, fun elements. And it had a lot of the lovely Tarantino, Tarantino-y things of, uh, that, that we love from Tarantino. Like that irony, that dramatic irony of knowing something's going to happen. And waiting for it to happen. Like when Samuel L. Jackson puts the gun down next to the guy and then goes and stands and starts telling the story, trying to egg him on. Mm-hmm. We're, we know there's going to be a, gush, a shot here. And we're just like building it and waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it. And uh, and then finding out that he did it just so that it would be a legal kill yeah. is awesome. 
And, and and that's the thing. Like, do I think it's his best movie? Not. Certainly not. But it is it is a fun Tarantino film. And I mean, I I'm I'm happy I watched it. I'm happy he made it. And uh, I think I think in a lot of ways it it says I'm I've gotten the Western genre out of my system. Uh, is he, I think he's, isn't he still doing another one? I don't know, because, I mean, maybe he's planning on it, but in a lot of ways, this feels like he kind of said, okay, I've, I've, told, I've told the kinds of Westerns that I want to tell, and I'm ready to do something new. Hmm. But maybe not. I mean, like, th- this is the thing. If this is a murder mystery Western, and Django Chained is a kind of historical exploitation Western. It's a revenge kind of Western. Yeah, and Inglorious Bastards is a Western, a spaghetti Western set in World War Two. I mean... There's I still so refuse to accept that Inglorious Bastards is a Western. I'm sorry. Well, go talk to Tarantino then. I'll cause... have a long conversation with him about how it does not constitute a Western. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just I, – I don't know what kind of Western he would want to do next. Yeah. Well, we're going to do one. So, you know, that's fun. Paper Street yeah. doing, Paper Street's doing a Western in the Fringe in Victoria this year. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino so... Western should be fun. Yeah, and you're going to count Inglorious Bastards as a Western because it is one, Dave. It's not a Western. Okay. It's not set in the West. (laughs) It's like one of the only rules of a Western. (laughs) I'm not not having this argument with you. You are clearly wrong. Specific time period. (laughs) You you are 100% wrong on this, and you know it. I'm not. I'm 100% not wrong. We have talked about Firefly being a combination Western science fiction film. Yes. So you could say that this is a combination Western World War II film. Or which a is what World I said. War, uh, no, you said it's a Western set in World War II, which is very different. <laughs> it's a Western war film. But even then, I don't think it constitutes a Western because the storyline does not feel like a Western storyline at all. I'm going to find a place that actually resembles, in one way or another, the Spanish locales they had in Spaghetti Westerns, a no-man's land. With U.S. soldiers and French peasants and the French resistance and German occupations troops, it was kind of a no man's land. That will be that will really be my spaghetti western, but with World War II iconography. Yeah, kind of. He said kind of a lot in there. <laughs> You're fired from the podcast. All right, we can have a. We'll argue westerns later. Um, cool. Well, I think we should wrap up because we've been going on forever. We have been going on forever. But uh, any last little thoughts from you on Tarantino? I am excited to see Tarantino's future work, always. Um, any movie he makes, I will go see. Uh, and eventually, I mean, I think he even said once that directors end up getting old and start making bad movies. Yeah. And he hopes he's not there yet. And I don't think he is. I think, he, I think you know, Jackie Brown, he was there. No, I'm joking. Um, but I will keep going to see his movies as long as he makes movies. Because uh, he has not yet disappointed me to the point where I, I, I'm going to give up on him. You know, he didn't like M. Night Shyamalan me. So I I love his work. I love that he loves movies more than I do. Yeah. And so I can rely on him to be doing the best of the craft. And I know he loves storytelling as much as I do. And so he will always do the best crafting of storytelling that he can and the greatest dialogue you'll hear and is not afraid to handle topics that people are afraid to handle. And so I will, uh, yeah, I love Tarantino. I, I don't think I need to, to say any more than that. I also love Tarantino. 
Well, now we should probably end the podcast with the beginning of the podcast so that it feels like a Tarantino podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Damn it. I can't. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Style Guide podcast. You know what? They get the point. They get the <laughs> point, Dave. <laughs> See you next week. See you next week. Thank you.